I think it will help you understand better the the language, the doctrines, and the intent of the confession if we study the very words of those who wrote it. If you are a constitutional scholar and you want to be a faithful, conservative, constitutional scholar, you, you need to read the materials written by the authors of the Constitution, right? You need to understand what do they mean by certain terms. So when, when the Declaration of Independence declares that there is a right, or, or the preamble to our um, Bill of Rights articulates that there is a right, an inalienable right, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words and phrases change over time, right? Things that we, once, even in our own lifetimes, we could point to words that mean something different than what they meant 20 years ago or 50 years ago and certainly 300 years ago. And so when our Constitution declares that a man has a right, that a woman has a right inalienably to life, we, we know that one fairly well, liberty, we understand that less so, but we understand at least in concept what the word means, but the idea of pursuit of happiness in our modern context, what do we think? You hear that word, pursuit of happiness. What do you think? That's not a rhetorical question. What, 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 what comes to mind? Yeah, whatever makes me happy. Follow my heart, right? It's, the, it's, the, it's the, the line from the Pocahontas movie, right? Close your eyes, forget what you see, what do you feel? Whatever makes you happy. Well, that's not what the, the framers of the Constitution intended to communicate, is it? The, the pursuit of happiness meant the ownership of private property. To be able to pursue your own personal estate. So in a similar way, words change theologically. Uh, things that, that our, the framers of our, the writers, the editors, I should say, of our confession of faith, things that they intended to communicate, if we read it only with our very Western, post-Enlightenment, 2022 kind of ears, we might come away with a different understanding of something than they, than they understood it. So all that to say, just as if, if we study any historical document, we need to understand its place in time. What was it written for? What, what did the writers intend to accomplish? So let's think a little bit, and this is not exhaustive by any means, but we, we glean, even from this uh, letter to the judicious and impartial reader, we, we find out some things about the context in which they were writing. The previous confession had been published they say here, in, put forth in the year 1643, that's when it was written, it was actually published around 1644, and there had been a number of accusations made against a group of separatists known as particular Baptists. The separatists were those who, um, you, you've heard the term Puritan, right? Well, Puritans were those who wanted to, as the name signifies, purify the Church of England. They were Protestant, they were rejecting Rome and Rome's rule, not necessarily all of Rome's doctrine, but Rome's rule. But then there was another group that emerged from the Puritans known as separatists. Now, what do you think the word separatist meant? <laughs> yeah, they want to forget reforming, forget purifying the Church of England. We want to separate from it. So of that group emerged groups like Presbyterians, uh, Congregationalists, and Baptists. Then among the Baptists, there were two groups. There were general Baptists, who held to a general atonement, meaning Christ died for every man, woman, and child. 
And some chose to accept that, some chose to reject it. Uh, you might hear the term limited atonement. Well, I don't think it's a good word, but that's, that's the L in tulip. Uh, limited atonement, but a definite atonement. It was, but there were those who were general Baptists, and there were also those who emerged that were particular Baptists. That's who we are. That's the stream from which we come. Out of the Reformation, from the, from the Puritans, then from the Puritans, the Separatists, and from the Separatists, the particular Baptists. Now, they, don't weren't called, they weren't called particular Baptists because they were fussy about things. Uh, they, they were called particular because of the, their, their view of the redemptive work of Christ, that Christ died for a particular people and for those people only. But the Baptists in the mid-17th century, in the 1640s or so, 1630s and 40s, were subject to all manner of persecution and even public slander. Uh, you know, you, if you follow any kind of social media and you see, you know, Christian Twitter or Christian Facebook, it can get a little heated sometimes, can't it? In terms of what even Christians will say about one another and the accusations that are made about doctrines and beliefs. That's not new. Um, it, it's, it's at light speed now, and, and you can hold it in your phone, the palm of your hand, but the ethos of those things... Um, long before there was Twitter or Facebook, we had blogs, right? And people could get online and write anything... And long before there were blogs, there were books and publications. And, and in the 17th century, it was pretty common in, with the rise of the printing press. If you had a, a beef with someone, you published a pamphlet and had it printed. And so pamphlets went back and forth. And, and we'll talk about this. Those of you who are in the, the membership class will deal with this in a little bit more detail. Um, I think we, the second or third session, I don't remember which. We'll deal with some of that historical background. But the Baptists were accused of, of almost everything except being faithful Christians. They were accused even of sexual immorality because of they, they baptized in the water. And so they were accused of public bathing with both men and women together. They were accused of terrorism because there were Anabaptists who actually blew up part of a town in Munster in Germany. And so the original title to the first London Confession of Faith and I don't have it in front of me, but something along the lines of, of those who call themselves particular Baptists, though falsely called Anabaptists. So even in the title of their confession, they're saying, we're not them. So they were accused of immorality. They were accused of false doctrine. They were accused of being anti-government. Because, and they were accused of refusing to pay taxes because they didn't believe in a state church. And so that wasn't true, but that they were accused of all manner of things. Almost everything except being faithful Christians. So they wrote a confession in 1644 that, um, probably to no one's real surprise, they, they faced a lot of criticism for that. And some, because they, they taught a, a doctrine of baptism of believers only, you'd expect that criticism from those who practice paedo-baptism or the baptism of infants. But the Baptists were willing to listen because their desire was... Number one, to communicate clearly and publicly what they really believed, not what people spuriously, um, falsely said they believed. But they also wanted to demonstrate their unity with other true churches, particularly those who were of the Reformed um, and held to the, the Reformed persuasion and held to particular redemption. So they actually listened. Some of the criticism was was valid in the sense, not because the Baptists had expressed false doctrine, but because they recognized that the way that they worded some, some things 
were left them open to, uh, at best, a lack of clarity, a charge of a lack of clarity, and at worst, uh, false doctrine. So the confession was published again in an edited version in 1646. And they still faced public criticism for those things, but that was uh, many of the, what they referred to in their, their judicious and impartial reader introduction. There were those who did recognize, even some Presbyterians and Congregationalists who recognized, okay, these are true Christians. We have differences, but they are true Christians. And so having addressed some of the credible critiques, they now assert getting ready for to publish their the second London Confession, they assert that they they looking back historically now, the benefit of having, you know, 40 years go by, or 30 years by the time they, they actually write the the second London, they they view it as largely successful. So it's important, as they write the second London Confession, they look at the first London Confession and are not dismissing it. They're not seeking to undo it. They're saying this was successful, but we want to build further upon that same foundation that was built by basically two generations before us, a generation and a half before us. And and something else has happened. By 1677, the second or the first London Confession is, is basically had been out of print. And they say in their foreword, it was difficult to get a copy of it. It was hard to, to get your hands on it. And so one of their goals, and we'll see this in a few moments, one of their goals was this to be a teaching tool within the church. And that's not a very good teaching tool if you can't get a copy of it. So they thought, we need to, we're going to have to reprint anyway. And we, we want still publicly and intentionally to identify with other true churches. So why don't we come together and publish our own confession of faith, building upon the doctrines presented in our first confession, but intentionally consistent with the second, or with this new round of confessions. So something else had happened. Between the time that the, the Baptists published their confession in 1646, and the time that they republished a new confession in 1677, and that's that two very prominent confessions of faith were written and published. The first one was the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and if you study Reformed theology, uh, it, it is inevitable that you will come to, uh, you will be introduced to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, it is kind of the, the big brother or the, uh, maybe the granddaddy of many of the confessions that, that, that came afterwards. The Westminster Confession was published in 1646. You don't have to remember all these dates, but I do want you to have a sense of a, a, a linear progression. So in 1646, well, for several years leading up to that, Parliament in England had commissioned a, a committee, uh, the Westminster Assembly, to write a confession of faith. Uh, it was later formally adopted by Parliament. Again, and that first version of the Westminster Confession uh, did not hold to a separation of church and state. It still allowed for, for example, ministers to be paid, their salaries to be paid by the civil government. Uh, it, it allowed for the this, this state to call a synod and actually police doctrine within the church. Uh, obviously, the Baptists didn't agree with that. And, and so that was part of the, the separatist aspect of, of our doctrine. But nonetheless, 
the Baptists, our forefathers in the faith, did want to identify everywhere they possibly could with those who had gone before them. So the Westminster was written in 1646. Then in 1658, the, the Congregationalists. So the Congregationalists had doctrine very similar to the Presbyterians, but as their name would imply, they were not Presbyterian in their manner of government, meaning there was no hierarchy. They believed that local churches were autonomous governing bodies, that a local church was not accountable to a superstructure or a hierarchy or denomination or any such thing uh, as did the, the Presbyterians. So the Baptists have that now in front of them, and, and Jim Renahan in his, some of his lectures describes this. He said, I have this kind of scene in my mind when, they, when these men sit down to edit and compose the Second London Confession. They have kind of spread out on their table in front of them a copy of the Westminster Confession, a copy of the Savoy Declaration, which was a repackaged Westminster Confession, and they also have a copy of the first London Confession of Faith. And they have some other uh, secondary resources. But from that, they, they express in the foreword, in this letter to the judicial, judicious and impartial reader, why they're writing this confession at this particular time. And so I want to look through some of their arguments because it will help, I think, inform us of how to use and how to hold a confession of faith. I mean, as a church in Conroe, Texas in 2022, we have a document that's almost three and a half centuries old uh, that we, we actually quote from. Uh, we, we, it's not just a dusty document that's in our basement somewhere. We don't have a basement, but roll with me. It's not something we've just, we've just put out to pasture, so to speak. It's an active component of our church life. And we take the use of our confession from the example of those who've gone before us. They used it profitably, they used it faithfully, and they used it, I think very importantly, to enhance and, infer, and, and, and affirm the unique place of the Scripture's supreme authority. It was no, in no way designed to supplant or replace or undermine the Word of God. So as I said, the, this, our confession was written in 1677. But has anybody got an idea why we call it the 1689 Confession? Matthew? Yeah, the Commonwealth has a, has a history of things being illegal, especially in religious spheres. So at the time this was written, there was a, a season of great tumult, persecution, of difficulties. Uh, Non-separatist uh, churches were under attack. Baptist pastors were being placed in prison. You can go and read about men like John Bunyan, for example, who spent many years in prison. And he was offered many times, we'll let you out if you will stop preaching in the name of Christ. And Bunyan said, you can let me out, but tomorrow I'll be preaching. And so he remained in prison for several years. But in, in 1689, Parliament passed what was known as the Act of Toleration, where officially, yeah, the Act of Toleration, officially non-state religions could operate legally and above ground, so to speak. So the Baptists published their confession that had been written a dozen years earlier. So that's a little bit of the historical context. Let's think about the purposes of this new confession. I'm going to highlight four, 
four purposes that are described to us. Again, looking at the, the very words of the men who wrote our confession of faith. The ones who, and we, don't, we don't know who actually penned the, this opening letter, but it was agreed upon by all the churches. The first one was to demonstrate clear unity with other Protestant and Reformed churches. They wanted self-consciously, deliberately, publicly to declare their unity. Uh, this, this was not a, a, a factious or sectarian or uh, disagreeable group. Uh, the Baptists were not trying to uh, declare that they were the only ones who had the true gospel. You know, we've seen that in various sects and cults over the years throughout you know, Christian history. Uh, the Mormons, for example, you know, declared they're the only ones who have the true gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses have claimed the same thing. Rome has claimed the same thing. The Baptists never made such a claim. In fact, the opposite. They wanted to demonstrate that they were in unity with all true churches. They desired to express that unity um, with men with whom they had differences of conscience regarding doctrinal positions. The Baptists obviously had a different view of baptism. That flowed from a different understanding of covenant theology. Uh, they had a different idea of how the, from the scriptures of how the church should be organized and structured, what the government of the church should look like. And so they wanted to state their differences, but not to major on those differences, but to major on the things that they had in common with other true churches. Listen to this. <clears throat> this is, again, from the, their original forward. It says, we do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words. Does that sound familiar? Where'd that phrase come from, the form of sound words? It's right out of the pastoral epistles. Paul uses that phrase, form or pattern of sound words, with respect to the qualifications of an elder, and, and exhorting Titus and Timothy both to hold fast to the pattern or form of sound words. So they are self-consciously using a Pauline expression to say we want to hold fast to the apostolic teaching. We do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words, which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. Now, there's a dual nature to their allusion. One is to the Pauline writings, but they're also talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration, that form of sound words that have been used by others, meaning others have publicly stated their views. They've, they've published a confession of faith, and we want to readily acquiesce to the very form that they're using, the very pattern that they're using, because they believe that the Scriptures urges upon God's people to write down a form or a pattern of sound words that they can follow. Hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them. Well, the, that them refers to both the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. In that wholesome Protestant doctrine, which, which with so clear evidence of Scriptures, they have asserted, some things indeed are in some places added, some terms omitted, and some few changed. See, they say, we, we, we have tweaked some things in what they published. But listen to this. But these alterations are of that nature as that we need not doubt any charge or suspicion of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren upon the account of them. In other words, the changes that we have made have not done anything to the foundations of our faith. These are not things that we divide over whether or not someone's a Christian or not. You know, if you, if you, if you say, well, we don't believe in the virgin birth, well, that's a fundamental doctrine. If we don't believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, 
That, that's, that's undermining the foundations. If we don't believe that God is triune, we would undermine the very foundations. They said, we've done none of that. We have expressed our differences, but they're not of the sort that they would undermine any foundation. And we think, we think it's obvious that any true Christian will, will grant us that that's true. In those things wherein we differ from others, we have expressed ourselves with all candor and plainness, that none might entertain jealousy of aught secretly lodged in our breasts, that we wouldn't, that we would not the world should be acquainted with. In other words, no one can justly accuse us of hiding our secret beliefs. We've expressed ourselves plainly, openly. No one can charge us with kind of crossing our fingers behind our back, to use a modern kind of expression. Yet, we hope we have also observed those rules of modesty and humility as will render our freedom in this respect inoffensive even to those whose sentiments are different from ours. Do you, do you hear the charitable spirit? This is early on, right out of the gate. They say, we, we want to express ourselves, honor our own consciences, and also the consciences of other faithful churches and other faithful men. So it's a very ironic, very charitable. It's the right kind of ecumenical spirit. I think we can learn a lot from, from, their, from the ethos of their, their intention. And they accomplished this by employing the very same structure and even the very same words in many places that were shared with Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration. In fact, they make this statement. It's probably one of my favorite sentences in the whole, the whole forward. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. So where they can express themselves with, with respect to, and we'll, we'll see this here over the next few weeks, the doctrine of Scripture. Their words are identical, or almost identical, to the words of Westminster and Savoy. The doctrine of God is expressed in almost identical language. And the, and, the, and the subtle tweaks that they make were not because they disagreed on those things, but they just wanted to be even more clear in some particular places. So they have no itch to clog religion. They're not wanting to be innovators. They're not trying to be creative. They're not trying to be cute. They're just saying, we're trying to say, anywhere we can say, put our amen to the words that other men have already published, that's what we're going to do. Because we are committed to demonstrating our unity. And I think we have to ask, why, why is this important for us to understand this? You know, sometimes we have this idea in our, in our culture, um, even in our evangelical culture, that doctrine divides. You heard that? Or, or, you know, maybe not in so many words, but basically if we get too particular, too specific about our doctrinal beliefs, it actually divides people. See, our, our Baptist fathers believe something 180 degrees from that. They believe the clearer we are, the more opportunity we have with unit, for unity with other true Christians. And we don't have to be suspicious. We don't have to be fearful. You know, we can have you know, great, wonderful friendships with Presbyterian brothers and sisters, as an example. We know where we differ. Our, our, our ancestors have differed over whether or not to baptize our babies for generations. And we don't have to be fearful of that. We don't have to be suspicious of each other because both have written it down. We can put them side by side and see that we, we agree on the vast majority of things. And it's not that we're saying those are unimportant matters, but they don't undermine the foundations of the faith. We will be in heaven with many, 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 many Presbyterians and Congregationalists and others. We can learn much from the, the, their example of Christian love and charity. And, and even towards, maybe especially towards, those with whom they had doctrinal differences. And some of these had, were, were serious doctrinal issues. 
the issue of, of whether or not to baptize, whether your church should be constituted of only baptized believers or whether the church should be constituted of baptized believers and their children is no small matter. It's no small difference. And yet, they didn't want that difference to define their relationships with other true Christians. I think we can learn a lot from that. Jim Renahan makes this notation. He says, above all, they desire godliness to triumph in every church. Their motivation was unity and peace without sectarianism. Respecting the importance of conscience, they appealed for that which they were willing to grant. The church of Jesus Christ is greater than the sum of her baptized congregations. So they had, they had in mind the right kind of Catholicity. They recognized the church universal, that Christ was indeed Lord of all, and that Christ was, was greater, the church of Jesus Christ is greater than the sum of her baptized congregations. In other words, we're not the only true church. We can do both things at the same time. We can hold fast to our Baptist distinctives and and believe and say, we really think this is what the Scriptures communicate. And at the same time, I will happily call a Presbyterian a brother and look forward to uh, eternal fellowship with them in glory. We can do both. And I think that's something very important for us as Christians to remember, that these are not mutually exclusive. We can be very careful about our doctrine and how we express it, and also use that very precision not to push other believers away, but to cultivate a unity with them. It's an important lesson. The second thing, the second goal, they wanted to testify publicly that their doctrine has come directly from the Scriptures. They are not as, and again, think about their historical context. They knew Rome better than we do. They knew the errors of Rome with, with respect to what is the view of Scripture. See, Rome said that, that the church gave the Scriptures its authority. Well, that's completely backwards and upside down, isn't it? The Scriptures give to the church authority, not the other way around. And, and they knew this better than we do. And so they were not simply laying out the traditions of men. They were saying, Everything that we confess that is true is only true because the Scriptures teach it as such. And so they describe how they want very much for that to be abundantly clear, even in the way that they have footnoted and added scriptural references to every doctrine that they assert. They don't just simply say, we believe in purgatory. Where do you get that in the Bible? Well, you know that was handed down to us as as a tradition. Well, that doesn't work. If we can't prove it from the Scriptures and cannot establish it from what the Scriptures expressly set down or necessarily contain, it doesn't go in there. Listen to this. We have, this, they also, this is from their, their forward. We have also taken care to affix texts of Scripture in the margin for the confirmation of each article in our confession, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select such as are most clear and pertinent, for the proof of what is asserted by us, and our earnest desire is that all, that all into whose hands this may come would follow that never enough commended example of the noble Bereans who searched the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the things preached to them were so or not. You see how they communicate a dependence upon the word of God for their doctrines? This was not the traditions of men. So you will hear sometimes people say, well, why do we need a confession? That's just a man-made document, just the traditions of men. It was self-consciously derived 
from the pages of Scripture. Footnoted, documented, this is what, you know, we, we, we often tell our kids in, in our homeschooling, particularly in math, you have to show your work. You can't just write down an answer. You have to show me your work. And they were proud and eager to show their work, as it were. Don't just take my word for it. We'll show you in the scriptures where we got this, where this doctrine comes from. So they wanted to uphold unique authority. And, and they demonstrated this in a, in a very tangible way. If you have your confession with you, turn over to the very first chapter, chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures, the very first paragraph, and the very first sentence. This sentence is not in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is not in the Savoy Declaration. And it says this, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So if anybody ever tells you, why did your church have a confession of faith? Doesn't that undermine the Scriptures? Take them to that. The very first sentence in the very first paragraph in the very first chapter says the Scriptures alone have a place of sufficiency, certainty, and infallibility with respect to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, they didn't add that because they disagreed with the Presbyterian doctrine of the Scriptures or they disagreed with the congregational doctrine of the Scriptures. They just wanted to make it even more clear that their their view of Scripture was supreme. They stood upon the Word of God and nothing else, and their confession was designed only to summarize that which the Scripture taught. The confession, they never sought to, to make anything authoritative in the confession of faith that wasn't already authoritative from the Word of God. So we can, it is right for us, whether it's in a sermon or another teaching context or even just in, in your own family discipleship, to reference a confession and say this is authoritative because it summarizes what the Word of God says. And, and we can see how the writers of the confession intended for it to be understood that it was, it was a reflection of. And I've used the, the analogy I mentioned at the beginning that, that next week we'll kind of set the, spread the map out on the table, so to speak, and look at the, the, the trajectory and the contours and, and how this thing maps out. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about the confession. It's a map. When, when you, we don't really use maps as much anymore. I think that's a real shame. But we don't use the big paper fold-out maps anymore. Uh, I mean, I think no childhood is, is really complete until you've had to refold the whole map. I mean, I, repeatedly. It, 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 it's just incomplete. But when, when you have a map, does, it, does the map create any of the roads? Does, does the map make north or south or east or west true or false? Does, does the map um, determine what exists on your journey and what doesn't? No, it just simply describes what's there. And in a similar way, a confession is like a road map. It describes what you're going to find along the way. It's going to describe particular um, cities along the way, if you will. And some places are described in, in great detail. Others, not as much. So if, you get a, if you're trying to navigate from you know, someplace in the woodlands, the old national map is probably not going to help you a lot, is it? Even a state map is probably not going to help you. You've got to have the one that's zoomed in, right? Um, what I want to do next week is look at the national map. We're going to look at the big picture. And then as we go along, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to zoom in on those first six foundational parts, uh, foundational chapters in our confession. So uphold the unique authority of the Holy Scripture is their second purpose. First one was to demonstrate a clear unity with other Protestant churches. 
Thirdly, they wanted to promote holiness in doctrine and conduct in their own churches and among other true churches. This was not merely about doctrinal precision. This was about holiness in life. But again, because of what they believed about the Word of God, uh, as, as Paul uh, speaks to Titus in chapter 2, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he describes the effect of that sound doctrine on older men, older women, younger men, and younger women, bondservants and freemen. He just said, this is, what, this is what good doctrine should produce. And so they believed this. And they believed if, if our doctrine is clear, and the doctrine of other true churches is clear, that ought to produce what? Holiness of life. It ought to produce a godliness among God's people. And that was one of their goals. The glory and honor of the Lord Jesus and the supremacy of his word were clearly the focus of these Baptistic churches as they wrote their confession. And even when they differed on certain points with other Christians, they still desired to walk together in holiness with them. And to see them, even those, think about it, even for those with whom they had profound differences, they wanted to see them walking in godliness. Just as they wanted to walk themselves in godliness. Listen to this. This is in, again, I'm, I'm going to read from the foreword. There's a paragraph, if you have a, a copy of that, there's <clears throat> a paragraph that begins with, there is one thing more which we sincerely profess and earnestly desire credence, that contention is most remote from our design and all that we have done in this matter, and we hope that the liberty of an ingenuous, meaning deliberate and, and uh, faithful unfolding of our principles and opening our hearts unto our brethren with the scripture grounds of our faith and practice will by none of them be either denied to us or taken ill from us. Well, later in that same paragraph, it says, And owe that, other contentions being laid asleep, the only care and contention of all upon whom the name of our blessed Redeemer is called might be for the future to walk humbly with their God in the exercise of all love and meekness toward each other, to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, each one endeavoring to have his conversation such as becometh the gospel, and also suitable to his place and capacity vigorously to promote in others the practice of true religion and undefiled in the sight of God our Father. And that in this backsliding day, we might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others, but may every one begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways, and then to quicken all that we may have influence upon to the same work. That if the will of God were so, none might deceive themselves by resting in and trusting to a form of godliness without the power of it and inward experience of the efficacy of those truths that are professed by them. Now, these are powerful words, I think. Do you hear what they're saying? We can have all of our doctrine just right. And if it doesn't produce godliness in us, it's of no use. And so they desired in their own camp I'm going to, I'm, I'm, that's not their words, but you understand what I mean. In their own camp and in those others with whom they had disagreements, they desired that sound doctrine would produce godliness. And they begin with, oh, that. All those other contentions being laid to sleep. And again, let's put down our arms. We know we have those disagreements. We know where they are. 
We don't have to fight constantly about those. It doesn't mean we don't contend for the faith, but we don't have to fight constantly for about those things. Let's instead look at our own selves. Let's begin at home. Let's examine ourselves. R- rather than, <laughs> and in this backsliding day, now in the 17th century, they were describing a backsliding day. What would they think if they came here in our day? But in this backsliding day, we, uh, we might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others. And there's about other Christians. Do you think we can learn anything from this? Do you think if, in, in, in maybe your social media interactions you can apply some of these kinds of things? In, in terms of even just how you pray for those that may express something that you don't agree with doctrinally. Uh, how do you think about that, that person? Do you think of them as a brother or sister in the Lord? Or do you immediately, you know, like James and John, say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? We can call down fire right now. <laughs> Guys, hush. That's, that's not what we're doing right now. So they wanted uh, to see true godliness. Uh, very quickly, I'll close with this. The other, the other one, uh, and, and it's a very important purpose, they wanted this to be a useful tool for instruction in their own churches and among their own members. The confession, again, was not something they wanted to write, put it in a bottom desk drawer somewhere, and leave it there. They wanted this to be a useful tool to their congregations. I mean, think about this. Someone comes to faith in Christ. You hand them the big Bible. They say, go read this. Uh, okay. What, what? I saw a, a meme just the other day. It was somebody in, a, in an old like Thunder uh, T-Bird or something like old Trans Am. And, and the caption, it was, and you hear the engine revving, and, and you, the caption was, you know, me and my Bible reading plan, you know, Genesis 1 to 15, and he's revving the engine, revving the engine, and then he pulls out, so this is me in Genesis, you know, 16 to the end, and then, then he's pulling out, he's kind of doing a, the smoke coming out of the tires, he's taking off, and this is me in Exodus 1 through whatever, and then, then it, he turns, and the door flies open, and the, and the driver goes rolling out onto the, me in Leviticus. Well, a lot of truth to that, isn't it? And so you hand someone, not that Leviticus is unimportant, but you hand them the Bible and say, just go start reading. You're a new believer, or maybe not even a believer yet. Just start reading. And they get bogged down. Where do I go? What am I supposed to know? What are the most important things? What are the fundamentals? And a confession of faith helps us a great deal to sort of sort through those things to help us prioritize. If you're going to study any other discipline, mathematics, engineering, music, history, you, you start with some fundamental things first. In educational circles, we call that a scope and a sequence. Right? Eric knows exactly what I'm talking about. You have a scope. What's the goal? By the time you finish the ninth grade, what should you know? By the time you graduate high school, what should you know? That's the scope. And the sequence means you need to, you need to be able to add, subtract, multiply, and divide before you can do pre-algebra, right? There's a sequence to things. We think, why do we not think that way theologically? See, the Bible isn't written for us um, strictly chronologically, nor is it written in a sequential theological manner. There is a, a, a helpful use of systematic theology to be able to systematize. What, what do we believe about the doctrine of Scripture? What do we believe about the doctrine of God from the whole counsel of God's Word? Renahan makes this, this observation. By the way, <clears throat> and I just brought the cover because I didn't have room in my briefcase for the whole book. This has just come out. I got it in the mail, I think, two weeks ago. 
It's called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader. This is volume two that Dr. Renahan has done. I mean, far and away, the foremost living scholar on our confession of faith. In fact, this might be the best exposition of our confession ever written in history. Um, this has been years in the making, and so looking at historic, uh, um, original sources, looking at the, the documents, I mean, he's, our brother has crawled around in dusty basements and attics in London for years, putting this together. Uh, I, I highly commend this to you. This is, if you, Founders Press, you can get it through Founders, has published it. This is volume two. The first volume is an exposition of the first London Confession, which is also very good, but this is the one that will be extremely helpful uh, to help, if you just as a reference for you, if as you're studying through your, your own Bible studies, your own study through our confession, if you have questions, this would be the go-to place uh, to get help in some of those answers. And in this, um, on page one, in his forward to this, Dr. Renahan makes this. He said, on, on the 26th of August, 1677, the following entry was recorded in the manuscript minute book of London's Petty France Church. Quote, it was agreed that a confession of faith with the appendix thereto, having been read and considered by the brethren, should be published. Renahan observes, this is the first known literary reference to what has become popularly known as the 1689 Confession of Faith. The notation that the document had been read and considered by the people of the church, meaning the brethren, is significant in that it demonstrates the contextual nature of the affirmations contained in its 32 chapters. The publication was explicitly intended, meaning the confession, was explicitly intended to provide contemporary congregants with a clear doctrinal compass for their lives. That was a clear goal as they wrote the confession. And as the churches, one after the other, adopted this confession of faith for their own church, the desire was that this would be used in the families, in the households, in the church of Jesus Christ, so that in the instruction of your children, in the instruction of those who were in your employ, for the instruction of your own uh, understanding of Scripture, that you would have a confession that could be a very, very helpful tool for you. Again, a roadmap. Um, very few people, unless they just had no specific timeline or no desire to get, get anywhere particular, would, would just jump in their car and decide, I'm going to California. I don't need a map. I'll just wing it. Sunset in the west, I'll head that way. I mean, most of the time, you're, you're going to get a map. Uh, you're you're going to plot your course. And yet, for the Christian life, sometimes we, somebody comes to faith in Christ, we say, praise the Lord, they've, they've come to faith in Christ, then what? We set them out on the road with no map, no guide, no tool. And the confession of faith can be an excellent, excellent tool. There's another... Uh, more lengthy quote that I'll, I'll reserve. Um, several of you will be in the membership class this afternoon, uh, and I'll, I'll save it for there. But they, they say there's one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day. Again, they refer to them, their own generation as a backsliding one. They looked at the spring and cause of decay of religion in their day, and it was the lack of discipleship in the home. It was the lack of parents and even masters, and, and by masters, they mean an employer. Let's say you're a, a master blacksmith, and you had a couple of young men under you. They believed it was your scriptural duty to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and make those things known to those who were in your tutelage. And so they said, this is, this is the real cause of decline in our day, is that this isn't being done in homes. 
This isn't being done. And, the, and they wanted the catechism and the confession to be a helpful tool in that. Keep in mind, at the time, not everybody even had a personal copy of the Scriptures. They might have their notes either written down or memorized from the sermon that previous Lord's Day, and maybe they had a copy of the, of the confession or a catechism. And they, they said, we want this to be useful in the homes of God's people so that as our children are raised in the fear and instruction of the Lord, that's not just an ambiguous concept. There's a tangible expression. We can work through these things so our kids can come to know what sound doctrine is so that not if, but when they hear someone say something that is not sound, something that is an error, they will immediately say, wait a minute, that's different than what I've been taught. That's not the same as what mom and dad have taught me for years, what I've heard in my church. And so they are, in a sense, inoculated against some of those errors and heresies that will come. Uh, John tells us very clearly, antichrists have come and will come. Are our children, are those in our households, uh, trained, uh, not just in, in general concepts, but in the particulars of our faith? I'll close there. We're, I went longer than I intended. Um, we'll pick up next week with uh, beginning to survey the confession as a whole. And uh, it's, it's always helpful for me, again, to see that big picture. I'm, I'm the guy that I hate the GPS because it always starts at the micro level. And the first thing I want to do is zoom out. Where am I? And so we're going to start with the zoomed out view. Where are we? Uh, where, how do the parts fit together? We have 32 chapters. Are they just kind of 32 disconnected, random uh, pieces? Or is there a logical, linear, covenantal flow? Uh, is there a method to their madness, so to speak? So let's pray. And we'll take a short break. Father, we are grateful, uh, again, for the work of your Spirit in in every generation. Uh, We thank you for the godly men that you raised up, the godly churches that you raised up more than three centuries before we were born uh, to record and to write down these things uh, for our help. And we are grateful for it. We are grateful for their dependence upon the scriptures and their desire to see a unity among all God's people and their desire, desire to see godliness, true godliness, take root and flourish among the people of God and, and for their desire uh, to see tools uh, placed in the hands of, of every child of God, every ordinary Christian, uh, just to, to grow and trust more in the, the faith once delivered to the saints. We thank you and we praise you. Uh, for your ongoing work of your spirit among us, and we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, to learn these things, to, to embrace them, and to praise you for them. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.